Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Anybody else in the mood to dance? Just a little bit? It's in you, isn't it? It's just a little bit there. That's right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Um, I'm Jonathan. If you don't know me, I'm uh, one of the staff pastors uh, that is on the preaching teams, but this is also my home church, and it's my privilege to kind of be in here in the room with you this morning and to talk about the subject of work, and wait for it, and laziness. Laziness. It's a good time to talk about these kinds of things. Uh, If you're just kind of joining into our series, we've been talking about um, the book of Proverbs, asking for a friend. The truth of the matter is in our lives, we all have those moments when we want to know something, but we're a little bit embarrassed to ask for it. And so we saunter up to somebody um, and we say, hey, I'm just asking for a friend. So we're trying to unpack some of life's most difficult questions, some of the most challenging subjects that we can imagine and we're trying to unpack them from within the book of Proverbs. Now, here's why that's important. When it comes to Proverbs, we are looking for something specific. Proverbs sound like promises. They sound like promises, but they're actually principles, and that's going to show up on the screen here in three, two, oh, yes, there it is. Could you guys just, uh, we're talking about work and laziness. Could you guys just thank everybody in the sound booth right now? No laziness back there whatsoever. All right, here we go. All right, we got, uh, we got principles that we're looking for, not promises. The Proverbs sound like promises. That's how they sound. Like uh, raise up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not turn from it. Sounds like a promise, doesn't it? But it's actually a principle. It's a form of wisdom literature. It's about the art of skillful living. And so it's this more generic, more general understanding that under normal circumstances, this is the way life works. And the wise understand, the wise are able to tap in to the principles that God has set into motion that are part of this life, a part of this world, even this world in a broken world, and as a result, are able to live skillfully. It's about the art of living. So we're looking at the Proverbs, and we're looking at um, a number of the issues that we all have questions about and are seeking answers for, and today, work and laziness. Now, when it comes to the subject of work, it's interesting because the Bible actually begins and ends with work, what theologians call the working paradise. You begin with paradise, and there's labor, there's work. Adam and Eve are created, and they're placed in a paradise, and they're actually told to go do something. They're told to go work. They're told to go cultivate. And then you go fast forward to Revelation, and in Revelation, you have the undoing, or maybe positively the renewing of all things, and you have work also. You have a kingdom that is represented and spoken of in the book of Revelations, and in the kingdom, after sin is removed, after brokenness is rebroken, undone, and fixed, after everything is made perfect... We have work, which is supposed to emphasize the idea that we're actually created for work, that work is really our natural state. It's 
the working paradises, but the reality is, is there's the paradises that are spoken of and referenced in Scripture, and then there's the middle, where the rocky soil of life is. It's the middle that we find ourselves in. It's the thorns and the thistles, where those who live in between the two paradises. And as a result, we have some attitudes about work that aren't necessarily attitudes that line up with the two paradise pictures. Uh, we come to work oftentimes with a sense of frustration. Actually, this is a biblical idea. If you go to Ecclesiastes, you'll see things like vanity of vanities, all is vanities, talking about work. That life promises more than it delivers in a broken world, and as a result, um, we, we take two steps forward, three steps back. But the reality is, is that there is frustration in the universe, and we experience frustration. When we think about work, we often think about frustration, how frustrating it is to even have to work. When we think about work, we think about punishment. Some of you grew up in a family where punishment was work. Uh, I remember one time uh, I was, I was uh, working at a as a clerk at this grocery store, and um, I didn't show up on Sunday. I told my boss I don't work on Sunday. She scheduled me anyway. I figured this was a battle I must face and win, so I did. And her punishment was that the next time I showed up to work, I had to pick up all the cigarette butts by hand in the front parking lot. It was punishment. And we often associate work with punishment or some form of punishment as a result of the experiences that we've had in life. Work also seems to be then a necessary evil, something that essentially robs us of joy. Then there's the other side. There's a whole other group of you out there that don't associate work with frustration necessarily as priority. Actually, um, you love work and you say things like that, and the rest of us don't know what you're talking about. And I mean, you love work so much that you actually are more tempted to go to work than you are tempted to spend time with your family. Work has become an idol to you, right? And this is also prevalent in our American culture, that, that work equals wealth, and as a result, it's, it's worth anything that is required to pursue it, to acquire it. And so work becomes the joy. Work becomes the thing. It becomes the only thing. It becomes the all-consuming desire, what we believe and have believed for centuries, regardless of where you land, is that work is unavoidable, that work is just part of the universe and it's something that we have to do. But in recent years, that idea that has stood the test of time has really come under attack by a number of people, significant people, uh, people who even enjoy working. For instance, this week, Elon Musk sent out a post, a tweet. I follow him on Twitter. I know that's hard for some of you to understand. Some of you are like, I don't even know what Twitter is. That's because you're five years old. <laughs> and uh, it's interesting because Elon Musk has this idea, and he's propagated this on YouTube and other places as well for, an, for a little while now. But when it comes to the AI conversation, he actually believes that work is going to become an option. Did you get, catch that? That what... AI is going to actually do is it could create an environment, create a society that's so successful that work will be something that we do only if we're passionate about it, only if it fulfills us. To the American mind, that not only makes sense, that sounds right. That sounds like what we would want, fulfillment, passion. It's maybe encapsulated in something that maybe you've told your children. 
find something that you want to do, find something that you enjoy, and then turn it into a job, right? I mean, what could be wrong with that? But there's another darker side and also prominent side of our society that is asking a deeper question, and it's this. What if I choose not to work? Is that acceptable? What if I just decide work isn't for me? Ironically, this isn't a new problem. We think this is a new problem. It's not a new problem. In fact, it was a problem that emerged in the early church. It's a problem that Paul addresses in the Corinthian church. Because the church was so gracious and so compassionate and so generous, there was a whole group of people within the church, not society. Society would have frowned on this, but there's a whole group of people within the church that decided that it was no longer beneficial for them to work. They weren't fulfilled by it. They weren't passionate about it. And by the way, there was free food every time they came to church. So they just showed up. Paul has some words. But it begs the question, if we're Christians, what does God think about work? What does he think about it? When it comes to asking these kinds of questions, I want to build a paradigm. I want to shape or frame the discussion. I think it's important, and you're going to see why. When it comes to the discussion about work, we first need to paint the paradigm of what I call God's ideal. God's ideal is this. He's an idealist. I don't know if you know that about God. But he's somebody who says, this is the way you were created. This is the design. This is the blueprint. This is the order I want things to come in. And I want you to pursue it. Here's the good news. When we fall short of God's order, when we fall short of God's design, that is the role of God's mercy. We should all breathe a sigh of relief because very few of us always reach God's ideal in our lives, whether it comes to our marriages or uh, child rearing or when it comes to work or productivity. The fact of the matter is that God has an ideal, and, and if we don't hold on to the ideal, we go backwards. But God's mercy allows us to live in the space between. But we pursue God's ideal. The question is, what is God's ideal? Because that's where we begin the conversation of work. What is God's ideal? We'll go back to the paradises, specifically Genesis, and we discover God's ideal scenario. It's a man and it's a woman, and they're doing battle on earth with the forces of evil, but they're doing something else. They're being fruitful, they're productive, they're multiplying, they're filling the earth, and their whole self is engaged in the process. But what we want to do today is narrow that conversation down. The truth is, when it comes to the subject of work, we could go all over the scriptures and we could talk about an enormous amount of material that would all be super, super helpful. But we're trapping ourselves, and intentionally so, within the book of Proverbs. I want to encourage you to do that in your study from time to time. We have a history, we have a history, and I'll call it a near history, within the last hundred years, of making the mistake in discovering a subject of making sure we find out what everything there is to say that the Bible has to say on the subject is. But there's actually a great benefit in saying, what does the Proverbs want to say? Because the Proverbs have a very specific slant. It has a slice, an angle. 
And if we're really going to understand work, we need to know that angle. We need to drill down, zero in, and mine some gold. And that's what we intend to do when it comes to the Proverbs. And we're going to lift out three things in particular. And the first one is, is not immediately obvious, but once you read through the Proverbs and you were to just identify all the passages that discuss work, would become more obvious. And it's this, that the first thing you need to understand is that provision is the main idea behind work. That there's this connection, there's this connection between what I do and what I experience, what the outcomes are. But it's centered around the idea of provision. Now in Alaska, we understand this idea. Like you go out and you procure your food because you need provisions. We need to provide for ourselves meat for the freezer so we can make it through the winter. So we go out and we do the work. If you don't hunt, you don't eat. And really the, Pro the Proverbs, as it narrows it down, really just wants to talk about that idea. And in fact, everywhere you go in the Proverbs, that's the idea that's being emphasized. That there is this practical connection between going out and doing the thing so that, so that over here, later on, I can actually experience the thing that I'm meant to experience. And again, this is a principle. This is generally true. It is true in our world that sometimes you do the work and there is no product. Sometimes we plant and there is no food. But most of the time, this general principle comes to fruition. That when I go and do the work, when I go out and hunt, normally I will end up with the food. And if I fail the first time, well, some of you are like, I failed, honey. I gotta go back, I'm sorry. Gotta go back out, I gotta go do it again. We need to fill the fridge. So where does this idea come? Well, we have the two bookends in the, in the, in the Bible, right? We have the, the two working paradises that bookend the space in the middle, the rocky places where you and I live, but the same thing is true in the Proverbs when it comes to work. To work. There are two bookends, and I wanna look at both of them. And the first one is Proverbs 6. And this is familiar, but look at what it says. It says, go to the ant. You, some of you are familiar with sluggard. I like this translation better. It's more my, it's more my generation. Um, go to the ant, you slacker. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, you're a slut. No, don't say that. Go to the ant, you slacker. Interesting, this word is used 14 times in the Bible. All of them are in Proverbs and nowhere else. See, there's something that we need to get from the Proverbs that is found nowhere else to this extent. You see what I'm saying? 14, 14 times, never used anywhere else. There's something specific. Go to the ant, you slacker. Observe its ways and become wise. Without leader, administrator, or ruler, it prepares its provisions in summer. It gathers its food during harvest. The main idea is that provision is required. When do we need provision? Well, we don't typically need provision in summer, do we? Because in summer, provision is bountiful. But when do we need provision? We need provision when the storms of life come our way. We need it in winter. We need it when the sunshine and the rain and the warmth of summer no longer have its effect on the product. And so the ant understands this along with many of the other animals in God's kingdom. 
And we understand this principle, don't we? That what we're actually doing when we're working is we're saving for a future need. We're saving for a future far-off day when we won't be able to work. We're working because it's not constant, but it's necessary for the day of adversity. And if we don't work, when the day of adversity comes, we won't have provision. Look at this. We'll go to the other end of Proverbs. We'll talk about the, the proverbial woman. And who can find this kind of a wife? Who can find a capable wife? The word capable here has the idea of strength. Guys looking for a really strong woman, physically. You know, somebody that's got a ability to carry a pot of water on her head. I don't know. But, uh, but something substantial. Not Cinderella that's wearing glass slippers, but somebody can get their hands dirty. Who can find this kind of a woman? Well, look at He goes on and says this about her. She evaluates a field and buys it. It's a businesswoman. She plants a vineyard with her earnings. She draws on her strength and reveals that her arms are strong. Look at this phraseology. Her strength, she draws on her strength and reveals something. When does she need her strength? In the day of adversity. And in that day, something is revealed. She reveals that her arms are strong. This is the idea of provision. When the storms of life come and she needs to be strong and make it through the winter, something is revealed. She's done the work. She's exercised her muscles. She's ready for what comes. She's made provision. She sees that her profits are good, and here it is, her lamp never goes out at night. Provision is a main idea in the Proverbs when it comes to work. The question is, are we wise? Are we skillful at forging provision for ourselves? Well, here's the second thing that is um, prominent in the Proverbs when it comes to work, and it's the idea of being rewarded. In fact, listen to this. Um, Work is always rewarded as a principle in scriptures. Uh, Look at this verse in Proverbs. Proverbs 27, 18 says, whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. Again, this sounds like a promise. It's a principle. Whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit, and whoever looks after his master will be honored. Reminds me of uh, a childhood story, this idea of being rewarded. Um, It's called The Law of Sowing and Reaping. It's the story of the little red hen. I picked this picture because there's a lot of pictures of the little red hen, the Golden Book series. Uh, This is the one that I grew up reading. In fact, I cut my teeth on this book. I'll just show a hands. How many of you read the story of the little red hen growing up? There it is. All right, parents, I just want you to know, if you haven't done that, shame on you. But, but I got your back. I've got your back because I'm just going to tell you the brief snapshot of the story of the little red hen. But notice this. This is the caption, right, for the book. This is a cautionary, I love that, a cautionary tale about how we reap what we sow. And the story goes something like this. You have this little red hen, and she finds, she discovers a, a, a speck of grain. She gets the grain, and, and there are these barnyard critters, these animals that surround her throughout the duration of the story. And she says, who will help me, who will help me plant the wheat, this piece of grain? 
And everybody says, not I, not I. I'm not going to help you. Uh, you're on your own. These are all capable people. They're people who are strong. But you know what? It's summertime, and food is plentiful. And so uh, they just are, they just, well, they're slackers. So they say, no, you plant the wheat. So she plants the wheat. And then, of course, uh, as you can imagine, the wheat sprouts, comes up, forms grain. So it's time, it's time, and this idea of the time element is critical to understanding the book, this children's book, but it's time for her to harvest the wheat. She says, who will help me harvest? Nobody. Not I. Nobody will help her harvest. So she harvests the wheat herself. She says, I'll do it myself. And then it comes time for her to take it to the mill so they can be ground into grain. She says, who will, take, who will help me to take the wheat to the mill? Not I, not I, not I. None of the barnyard animals are willing to jump in and get their hands dirty. So she says, I'll do it myself. She goes to the mill. She gets the miller to grind it into flour. Then she comes into her house and she says, who will help me turn this into dough? Not I. Nobody will help her turn it into dough. You get the, you get the pattern here, right? And then she says, who will help me bake it? Nobody will help her bake it. Then she says this, who will help me eat it? I will. I will. I'll help you eat it. And here's the moral of the story. She says, you didn't help me plant it. You didn't help me harvest it. You didn't help me mill it. You didn't help me turn it into dough. You didn't help me bake it. You are not going to help me eat it. I will eat it myself. Now, if you don't like that, it's because you're communist. (laughs) These are all capable individuals. Uh, These aren't the poor ones who are unable to help themselves, uh, who need some benevolence and generosity in their life. These are people, uh, these these are animals that are supposed to tell us about people in our lives who actually could help but simply won't. They're slackers. There's a difference. They just simply won't participate, and as a result, as a result, they can't be rewarded. It would actually be totally inappropriate and wrong to reward them. That children's book, probably on a list of you know, blacklisted books in our country at this point, but I encourage you to go buy it because it's an excellent story. So we have the Proverbs are about provision, about reward, or being rewarded, and then the last thing is there's something unexpected that we discover, and that is that work is often assigned. Work is assigned. An interesting passage comes to us out of Proverbs 24, and listen to this, it says, If you do nothing in a difficult time, your strength is limited. Notice the phrase. It's the same as what we've been seeing. In a difficult time, when the storm comes, something is exposed about you. What is exposed? Well, in this case, rather than a strong arm that the woman of a Proverbs 31 woman had, something negative is exposed. When the storm comes, the fact is, what's exposed is your weakness. Why? Because you did nothing. You didn't work to provide, and now the storm has come, and what is emerging to everybody is that you are actually limited in your strength. Then he says this, rescue those being taken off to death, and save those stumbling toward slaughter. This is the idea of a citizen. I'm going to get real political. We are often saying in our culture something that's peculiar to me. If you see something, say something. I get what we mean. But do you know, 
a citizen in America actually used to understand this as a more accurate way to act in society. If you see something, do something. I remember in the 90s when it was no longer, because of insurance, it was no longer appropriate for us to stop the robbery, to chase the thief, because insurance said we couldn't. Now we're turning into a society of tattletales. The citizen, the good citizen in the day of adversity actually acts. They actually stop the evil. They take it upon themselves to do something about it. If you see something, do something about it. I've told this story here before, but it's still a story I marvel at. It's a story about a gentleman that I grew up with in church, and he was much older than me, but the story about how he found his wife was telling. He was on the beach. He was a football player for Texas A&M. He was on the beach one day in Texas, and he saw, he and his buddy saw three guys raping a girl, and he decided that in that moment, it wasn't the time to see something and say something, it was the time to see something and do something. He beat the guys up, got the bride, they sat in front of me in church every Sunday. There's something about that that's important, isn't it? When we become more afraid of the consequence than the righteousness, we go backwards as a society. It's just a matter of time. We have to be clear on these things, really clear. If you do nothing in a difficult time, your strength is limited. Rescue those being taken off to death. Save those stumbling towards slaughter. He continues, look at this. If you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Won't he who protects your life know? Won't he repay a person according to his, there it is, work? Now what's interesting about this is the, the, the line of thought, the thought process that goes into this. The thought process is very specific. God protects you. And because God protects you, you should protect others. That's all there is to it. God's provision, because work is about provision in the Proverbs, God's provision is that he provides for you by protecting you from enemies. When you see somebody going off to slaughter then, what should you do as somebody who has been protected and is being protected by God? You should do something about it. That's what you should do. Again, I think as a church we're not really clear on this, but we should be. We send our soldiers off to war, our policemen to dress up, but then we condemn them for doing their jobs. And really, it's all of our jobs is the point of the Proverbs. There's something for us to do, which brings us to a very important principle I don't want you to nudge away. God is at work. He's protecting. God is at work and invites us to join him. That's what God is doing, and when it comes to our theology of work, that's what we need to understand. God is at work, and there is the invitation for us to join, not our boss, but him in his great work. One of the most important stories in the New Testament surrounding Jesus is the story where he heals a lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And we think a lot of things about the story. We think uh, this is a story that emphasizes the miraculous power of Jesus, and it does. But really, it's a story about work. 
And it's interesting because the story begins like this. He goes to a man who's lame, who's sitting by the pool, and he doesn't say, do you want to be healed? He says, he says um, do you want to be made well? It's a question, as if the assumption is the guy's not entirely sure if he wants to be made well. That would involve work. That would involve taking responsibility, and quite frankly, his entire life, he's been cared for. He's been dependent. And it's almost as if Jesus is calling him out. It not only begins with work, but he's doing, Jesus is doing this work of healing the man on the Sabbath. The very day the religious folks say, you cannot work. The whole passage is about work and our relationship to it. And listen to how the passage ends. John says this, Jesus responded to them. After the Pharisees say, you can't heal on the Sabbath, he says, my father is still working. You want to know what my father is doing? He's still working, and I am working also. And this relationship between God is at work and we're joining him in his labor is solidified in the Gospels. That what Jesus does is he reveals that it is now the time for work. Ultimately then, I want you to remember this. Work is actually a summons. The invitation to work for Adam and Eve is an invitation granted to us as well. To join God in what he's doing, no matter what it is that you find to do with your hands whether that's in ministry or business or as a soldier, it doesn't even matter. Whatever God places in front of you to do, it's an invitation to work with him. He's got a job for you. He's got a task, something for you to do. Even if you are beyond the workforce, you've aged out of the workforce, or there's a physical ailment, there's still a way for you to join God in his task on earth. It's a summons, which introduces us to a new idea. Work is more than passion. Work is more than fulfillment. Work is mission. If we were to come up with a good definition of what the Bible and the Proverbs are trying to highlight, is it's that work is a mission. It's the mission that we've been assigned. There's something that must be done. I love the example of Jeremiah. We go to the prophets. All these guys were called to an assignment, a very specific task. Look at Jeremiah's, though. He's known as the weeping prophet, and there's a good reason. Listen to this. God comes to Jeremiah and invites him to join him in work. Now get ready, God says. Stand up and tell them everything that I command you. We all know God only says nice things, so it's going to be an easy task, right? Stand up and tell them everything that I command you. That's significant. Everything. Saul gets slammed by God because he doesn't do everything according to what God said. He loses his kingship over it. Jeremiah understands this. This is a tall order. Do not be intimidated by them. Them, he's about to mention in the next verse, but he says this, do not be intimidated by them or I will cause you to cower before them. The word intimidated and cower are actually the same word. I will intimidate you. If you are intimidated by them, you will be intimidated by me. 
you will cower in front of me. In other words, this wasn't about Jeremiah, just do, what's, do what your passion is. <laughs> Jeremiah, just do what fulfills you internally. Just find what you like to do and then do that. No, 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 no. This was, this was an assignment, and it was a difficult assignment. This was a mission. This was work. There was a joining of God, and he had been chosen, selected for just such a time as this. And so Jeremiah is going to be essentially prompted and moved by God to do the thing, even if it's against his better senses. Today, he says, I am the one who has made you a fortified city, an iron pillar. Literally, Jeremiah, you are a man of steel, the original man of steel. You are bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the population. They will fight against you. Jeremiah has to be on mission to accomplish this. He has to have a bigger, more expanded view of work beyond what is it that fulfills me today? Are you with me? There's something else that he has to have in his theology, his understanding if he's going to accomplish the task that God has given him to accomplish. Which brings me to this, and I hope it's a practical point for you. It's this principle about work, that meaningful work extends beyond personal fulfillment. Isn't that true? If it's going to be meaningful, it has to be beyond you. And essentially, this is what Jeremiah is invited into. And maybe this is our connection to the text as well. No matter where we find ourselves, between the two paradises of work, in the rocky places of our life, we have a mission. We have a place to live out a meaningful existence insofar as it comes to work. I was talking with Jonathan Walker yesterday and we were just going back and forth about some of these ideas and he reminded me of Ronald Reagan's 1981 inaugural address where towards the end of his address he tells a story about an individual who was on mission and mission can change everything. It can change the course of your life. It can bring, breathe incredible meaning and significance in your daily decisions. And he quotes um, an uh, uh, individual named Martin Treptow, who in 1917 leaves his barber shop to go to the front lines in France in World War I um, to fight. And listen, listen to this mission that was recorded in his journal. Martin ends up dying on the front lines as he's transferring a letter between brigades, and they find on him, on his dead body, this journal, and these words were recorded, America must win this war. See, that's more, that's more than just what are you passionate about. Passion fades. This is bigger than that. It's more than just self-fulfillment. There, there's something here that goes beyond me. America must win this war. Therefore, I will work, I will save, I will sacrifice, I will endure, I will fight cheerfully, and I will do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. A mission can change everything. 
which exposes something to us about work. Work is not the enemy. Work isn't the enemy, connection is. Or maybe I should say it this way, a lack of connection. This lack of connection with God and his mission for us is the problem, not work. Take Jonah, another prophet. What is the problem with Jonah? The problem with Jonah is not that he goes and does the work. The problem with Jonah is that he hates the work because of a lack of connection with God. We can do the right thing and end up with the right result and hate the whole experience because we're not connected to the heart of God. And converse, Jeremiah actually endures. The story that is told of Jeremiah, even though he's the weeping prophet, even though he's thrown into the pit, is because it's all connected to God and God's great work in this world. Jeremiah perseveres. Jeremiah endures. Meaningful work extends beyond personal fulfillment. There is a greater good on the line. But this also tells us what happens if we choose not to work. Remember, there's a whole group of our people in our society that just are asking that question, maybe work isn't all it's cracked up to be. It is frustrating. Maybe it's just, you know, a, a necessary evil, but maybe it's not even necessary. What if I don't work at all? What if I could create a world in which work didn't exist? What's interesting, I think we have to answer that question honestly, maybe even in our own hearts. And I think Proverbs answers it for us. If we say that we are not going to work, then it's also necessarily true that we will miss our opportunity to change the world. Because that's what work is. If it's a mission, it's an opportunity to change the world. Paul understood this. And even though his vocation apparently seemed to like, I mean, he went from you know, high society to low society to tent making to prison, it didn't matter. The work continued. From a prison cell chained to a praetorian guard, he writes half the New Testament. It didn't matter. The work went on. He understood God's definition of work. And as a result, he changed the world, which is why Work isn't meant to be avoided, it's meant to be celebrated. As Christians, we celebrate work. And as we look at the Bible and as we look at Proverbs and we look at the Apostle Paul, we believe that is what is being drawn out. In church history, when the Reformers took a look at work, they began to change their whole thinking. They're a whole paradigm. And they begin to make a distinction that the Catholic Church hadn't made. The Catholic Church believed that there was only one kind of work that God was interested in. And that was the priesthood. Everybody else was laity. They were nobodies. And God didn't even care about what they did. It had nothing to do with kingdom impact. And this division between the aristocracy and the church and the common man continued to grow and develop over the centuries. When the common man finally got the Bible in their own language and inspired the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant reformers realized that God, in fact, wanted all of us to be on his frequency. And they redefined work. And you know where that began? 
It began in Germany with Martin Luther. And do you know what? In this, to this day, the Germans are known for? They're not slack. They're not sluggards. They never have been. The Protestant Reformation kept them from that. Our theology matters. The Proverbs matter. The way we live matters. How is it that we're embracing the theology of work? The Apostle Paul kind of wraps up his thought to the, second, the, the church in Thessalonica and 2 Thessalonians with these words, and I'm going to invite the, the team to come back on stage as we end with this. But, but as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in it. God understands that we live in the space in between the two paradises. He understands that sometimes the assignment he gives us is a difficult assignment. He understands that, that we don't always reach his ideal. He understands that sometimes because of physical ailments or because of the, the problems associated with life, things that we, we had nothing to do with but are part of the circumstances we live in, that his mercy is going to be necessary in our lives. But we should never let go of God's ideal, and we should teach them to our children, and we should tell doggone it the story of the little red hen. Are you with me? All right. Let me pray for you, and as uh, the worship team hopefully comes out, I'm just trusting at this point that they will. Would you guys go ahead and stand with me, and uh, I'm going to close in a word of prayer. I'm going to pray for you about this, and then we'll sing together. God, I just want to thank you so much for the Proverbs, for writing it down, the thing that was in your head, you wrote it down. You journaled it. I just want to thank you, God, for those who have journaled throughout the years. They've written down the things that you've done so that we have the record of your greatness, your glory, and your majesty. And I'm thankful, God, that you have written down practical words for us, like on this subject of work, so that we know what to do, so that we have clarity, so that we're no longer confused about a world that essentially is opposed to the things that you stand for. But Lord, we don't exalt ourselves because now we have some truth. We realize that is meant to bless the world, not to condemn it. Realize, Lord, that every time we come into contact with you and we grow in our knowledge of you and we grow closer to you, that isn't meant to, to make us haughty or proud. It's meant to expand your kingdom. It's meant to reach the people around us with good news. There is a good way to live. There is a way to please you. And it has an impact in culture and society. God, would you give us the courage to get there? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.